First of all, it's all five of us have will have one Bumble account. Yeah, no Bumble. Yes. <laughs> There's five separate pictures of it. And then we just like reach out to people. We just talk sports. I think we should join Podcast Meets Bagel. Welcome to Three Idiots and a Lawyer. I'm Matt Pfeiffer, along with Kevin O'Keefe, Brett Fortnum, Joe Shell, and Colin Lerner. We hope you had a great Thanksgiving and happy December. Almost through 2020, and believe it or not, we have hit 30 episodes with today's episode. Hard to believe we got that far. But today, basketball season is, is starting to really get going. But we're going to first focus on the women's basketball team. Syracuse women's basketball is ranked 22nd in the country in the AP poll. They're coming off their first win of the season, 50-39 to at Stony Brook on Sunday. Tiana Mangakahia uh, returned um, following her cancer treatment that forced her to miss last year. Uh, it had 16.7 rebounds, four steals, three assists, just an overall great day. Uh, back, Camilla Cardoso, the freshman, had 14 points. This is a really good team, guys. It, it's it's probably the best team on the Hill right now. They're preseason number three in the ACC, and uh, they have the fourth-ranked recruiting class in the country uh, that's starting this year with their freshman there is a lot of reason to be really excited for what the women's team is going to offer this winter. Well, the thing that I think everyone should be the most excited for, regardless of how this team does, is just the fact that Tiana Mangakahia is playing basketball again. And not only playing basketball again, but playing it very well. That's the best story in Syracuse sports this year, no matter what any team does. The fact that this might be the best women's team in program history, at least coming into the season, there are high expectations, is icing on the cake for me. That recruiting class led by Camelia Cardoza, there was a video going around of her um, dunking in practice early on. I mean, it, it, it's exciting. And Cardoso isn't even starting, at least yet. So I, I think there's a lot to look forward to here. They're picked for, I saw, third in the ACC but they even received a couple first-place votes. The sky's the limit for this team. It's, it's a really deep team, too. If you look, a lot of the bench, the sixth, seventh person on the team, uh, they could probably start at a lot of other top programs outside of UConn. I mean, it's amazing that our top recruit isn't even cracking the starting lineup, and you have like three guards who can all shoot, and they have a lot of size. So it is, it's exciting. It if you know if the men's team goes south, we might be turning our attention a little more intently to the women's team this year. Well, just looking at these freshmen in this class, you know, Camilla Cardoso is the one that we talked about, you know, the most here. I mean, she's she was the number five player in the nation, according to ESPN, when she came in. She was averaging 24 points a game, 15 rebounds a game, uh, and was a McDonald's All-American. And then behind her, you have Priscilla Williams, who was the number nine player in the nation, was also a McDonald's All-American. She averaged 30 points and 10 rebounds a game. There is a lot to really like out of those freshmen. And then you look at who the starters were on Sunday. It was uh, Mangakaya, Kiara Lewis, Digna Stroutmane, Amaya Finkley-Guidi, uh, and Mava Jaldi-Tabdi. So, But you, you look at like Emily Engsler. She was averaging nine points a game last season. She's back. Stroutmane and Finkley-Guidi, uh, both three-year starters. You know, I mean, you've got... A lot of talent. I think, like Joe said, 
Very deep team here. And, and I just want to say credit to Coach Q. He doesn't get nearly as much credit, I think, just just because of the sport he coaches. He doesn't get as much credit as he really deserves. This is his 14th year already, and he is a great example of giving a coach time to think. Well, the university athletic site said 14. So <laughs> I don't know. 14, 15, whatever it is, he's been, he's got 304 wins at the program, uh, 126 wins in the ACC since they joined the ACC in 2013. There's a guy, though, who didn't have success right away, was missing the tournament. I think, you know, we remember seeing them in the WNIT a lot. When we were there, still early in his tenure, sometimes they didn't even make that. And the program just bought in and just let him build his system, build his program. They were patient, and now it's really starting to pay off. The recruiting speaks for itself. It, yeah. it really shows how, you know, even when, when they're high school recruits, how these girls are buying into what Coach Q has to offer. That is steadily improved the recruiting from – not really being able to draw in talent to compete even with the mediocre Big East Conference at the beginning of his tenure to now, I mean, we're not that far removed from playing in the title game. What was it five years, four or five years ago? 2016. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, we got we got the floor wiped with us, but that's what happens to everyone. And yeah. Yeah. the fact that the program's gotten more talented since then is is exciting. Absolutely. I think it's uh, indicative of what a strong program looks like. It's just like what Matt said. It's what it, it, this is what it looks like when somebody is given the time and the resources to really kind of build something that they believe in their mold. Something that I think was very similar to what happened with Bayheim, however, you know, however many years ago when he was kind of just given the keys to the city. And I think this is, again, just indicative of a strong program where you have these consistent top 10 people coming in, but they're not forced directly into starting roles. They're not forced to be the hero immediately they can kind of get their feet wet and come in um but i'm curious i want to ask you guys a question because this team is doing so great and made the um, championship what do we say uh, 2016 do you think this is indicative of i don't know so something about the difference in sports where there's less draw to leave early and go to the pros in the women's game well you're seeing people who should stay who do stay and i'm worried i'm not worried i'm um curious if it's i don't if you would like if keeping to see the, that being able of, to keep your talent helps yeah. you build the program i'm sure i mean yeah obviously leaving for the nba the wnba doesn't seem to be the draw that leaving for the nba is because you don't even see the stars in the wnba really leaving particularly right. early the top handful from uconn you know go after a year maybe two most of the elite talent kind of sticks and on the men's side of things you have middling prospects leaving early right. just to maybe have a chance to cling on to a deal, a G league opportunity. Yeah. I think part of it too, why you don't see the kind of leaving early for the WNBA that you see on the men's side, leaving for the NBA is just purely the salary difference, right? When you're going to the NBA, it's, I mean, talking about these huge contracts and not that there aren't really good tra- contracts in the WNBA. Of course there are, there's less guaranteed money out there. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and less opportunities because the men can – there's international money to be had too. And some of yeah, it exactly. is that the competition is so high that when you get your chance, you're not going to say no. Like after a freshman year, if you think you're in your prime uh, when you're a college player, 
Right, uh, when your stock is at its highest. Yeah. And then uh, you decide to stay an extra year. There's always a, sh- a chance that you have a, some sort of injury that makes it so that you, you're not the same player the next season. So when you get your shot, you take it. Whereas in women's basketball, I think they have the opportunity to, to stay a little bit longer. And then it just seems to me like the UConns and – you know, the top, top tier are the ones that get picked in the first, you know, uh, handful of rounds. And then, you know, hopefully uh, what, what we're seeing here is a build towards Syracuse being, you know, one of those top tier programs. I mean, I know there was a time when UConn was winning like every year, half the time or more. Yeah, I think they lost a game in like three years or something like that. Right. Yeah. It was crazy. It, it's insane, right? So yeah. like to see Syracuse uh, kind of creep into that that sphere, that would be really cool. What I was going to ask is, do you think that there are athletes on the men's side who will look at the success on the women's side and say, wow, what? look at what it looks like when somebody stays and develops their craft and really learns. And I was, I, my my question was, do you think that that will have any kind of effect on the men's team at all. The incredible success of people staying there on the women's side. I don't think so because I don't think the, the men's and the women's landscape is analogous. I think that for all the reasons we discussed, like there are reasons that the guys jump early um, that aren't really there for the women. And also when you look at how the different programs are built, Everybody's jumping in men's. It doesn't matter what type of program they are. Maybe Gonzaga, um, Wichita State used to be in that conversation before their coach turned out to be a dirtbag. But like you have these mid-level programs that are really building, but most everyone else, it's you know they're trying to get these highly recruited freshmen who might jump early, and then you have kind of a uh, a backbench of guys who are sticking around. Whereas with women's team. It, you're not seeing too many people jump early. So I just don't think there's a comparison there with, you know, seeing the success of the women's team and, and how that goes. I think it's, it's great for the, you know, for Syracuse university and for S- Syracuse sports fan. I mean, I'm, I'm excited about this women's team. I'm going to make sure I catch more games than I normally do. So it's, I, I think we just need to, to take it, take it for what it is. And it's its own thing and it's great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just to, I guess, kind of round this topic off, like right back to where we started, um, just talking about uh, Tiana Mal- uh, Makakela, like my, as somebody who's very close to breast cancer, being able to sit down and watch the game with my parents and being able to watch her story last year, it is fantastic. It's it's like you said, it's my favorite story of the year by far. Um, it will continue to make me happy as I watch it. And uh, I wish her and I wish this team absolutely nothing but success. It's as somebody, and I know there are many, many, many people who are cancers very close to their hearts and their families, I think this is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And it's going to give a lot of people a lot of hope to be able to watch this go happen. Absolutely. It, it, it's it's such a wonderful thing. And, and she made the preseason All-ACC uh, list, as did uh, Kiara Lewis. And then the newcomer watch list, uh, Cardoso, made that too. Uh, they have one more out-of-conference game. The women's uh, schedule looks a little different. They only have two out-of-conference games and then all conference games. There's only 22 games. So, you know, we talked last week about missing games. So there is a chance that this is going to be a very short season. If they end up missing a couple games here or there, we could be talking about a, a, a season with fewer than 15 games potentially. But when you look at what they've got, they've got their – 
Their next game is Wednesday at six against Lincoln University. It's a Division two school out of Pennsylvania. And then just some notable matchups because just so you know, in that preseason poll, they were behind Louisville and North Carolina State and ahead of North uh, Notre Dame and North Carolina. So uh, they play UNC twice uh, on the 17th and the 31st of December. January 10th, they play Notre Dame in the Dome. That'll be a big one. February 1st, they go to Louisville. And then February 14th, Valentine's Day, they'll host Louisville. So those are going to be really critical games. February 18th, they go back to Notre Dame. They only play NC State once, and it's the last game of the regular season on February 28th. So that is going to be really critical for them to set themselves up well for the ACC tournament and then hopefully the NCAA tournament. So those are really the games to circle on your calendar for the women. Uh, Should be, as you guys have said, a really fun team to watch. And they... Frankly, I mean, they're they're probably going to be ranked the whole season, I would expect. This is, you want to talk about a team with a high trajectory and, and going in the right direction. Um, this is a team that in a couple of years, you know, the idea of them winning a national championship is very much alive. And just really quick, I don't want to give Carol Lewis short shrift. Like that, that will probably be one of, if not the best backcourt in women's basketball this year. They return four starters and then Mangakahia. That just goes to show the depth that we were talking about. Yeah. And I also don't want to give Priscilla Williams short shrift either. I mean, everyone's going to be talking about Cardoza, who I just want to add, averaged nine blocks a game her senior year in high school, which is just an insane number. But Priscilla Williams was also a top 10 recruit nationally. So Coach Q scored two top 10 recruits, which is something that if you would have told a a Syracuse sports fan 10 years ago that the women's team was going to get two top 10 recruits in one year, they would have laughed at you. And, and now this program is really looking like one of the best programs in the ACC and is going to be on the national scene for what looks like to be quite some time to come. 10 years ago, pretty much exactly. I was uh, eating some delicious, delicious pizza brought to you by none other than coach Q when he provided pizza to the entire marching band, it was the greatest day of all of our lives. I wasn't there. <laughs> I I do remember that. I think that was 11 years ago. Even forgiven for his time being way too short all the time. <laughs> I mean, hey, if they keep playing like this, his tie can be as short as he wants. So Go shorter. Go shorter. If the, if <laughs> yeah, just go straight up to like. the sternum right <laughs> yeah, here. Shorter and yeah. more pizza. There you go. Well, we'll switch gears to the men. They opened on Friday against Bryant and squeaked one out, 85-84, in the Dome. It was, you know, I I listened back to our last episode, and Brett was clear to say, hey, it's the first game. They didn't get to practice that much, so take that for what it is. You know, it might not, it might, kind of essentially said it might be a little messy. Safe to say this was a little messy, but a win's a win. Uh, they've got a couple more days. To, they'll play Niagara University and former Syracuse quarterback Greg Paulus on Most Thursday. Most efficient passer in school history. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm, still, I'm still amazed by that. <laughs> uh, on Thursday, Greg Paulus, the head coach there at Niagara. Uh, so what did we see on Friday? What are we really worried about? Obviously, Sidibe's injury is going to be something that we're going to have to deal with, at least for the month of December here, which means – Dolajai is going to now probably be that center position. What are we thinking? I think what's clear based on that game, based on what you can take away from it, 
Dolajai is going to be the most important player on this team this year. He may not be the best overall player. I think there's a good chance that he is. Obviously, Alan Griffin is going to carry a bulk of the scoring um, and, and the buddy. rebounding. And Buddy. Um, either one of them could be the leading scorer. But Dolajai is going to be the most important player. I think he's the best passer on the team. And he flashed that a lot in this game. I don't know how much that's going to change sliding from the four to the five, obviously having a smart player who knows how to pass out of the post at the five is still valuable, but he needs to not foul out. And that's a problem for him anyway. And now that he's going to be at an athletic disadvantage more often than not playing the five, my worry is that he's going to be fouling out more often and earlier playing the five than he would playing the four. And that that's going to bring us down especially if someone like Frank Anselm or Jesse Edwards can't step up and prove that they're ready to play real minutes, then we're not left with many other good options. Well, hang on. I mean, Sidibe is out for potentially, I think, four weeks is the most A I month saw. is the minimum. And yeah, that's not like, the like, He's having these That's like we're getting into conference play right around then. I mean, so it's not like he's out. Yeah, in a conference yeah. play in like two weeks. Well, he's also having knee surgery on the same knee that he hurt his freshman year. So it's always. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So it doesn't bode well. Place with Sidibe. Okay. So I don't think we should throw that away and say like Dolce is going to play. Four weeks is a long time. That would be especially in an uncertain season. That you could be a lot again in four weeks. Uh, meniscus surgery, four weeks is the time for some schmuck like me to be up and walking around, not a six foot ten dude to be playing basketball at a high level. I, I really, really don't want to see Dolor Jai playing five for more than a handful of games. I mean it's it gonna be many games. But I guess it all depends on how we're we're doing with Edwards and and uh uh, I guarantee in the next five, few like, in the next handful of games you will see Dolajai be the only guy play real minutes at center. So if you think about who we play in the next four weeks, just since since Kevin brought this up, okay. Niagara, Ryder, Rutgers, who's ranked twenty-fourth in the country, Boston College, Buffalo, Notre Dame, Wake Forest, fourteenth ranked, and, and then so that is December thirtieth. So that's like just over four weeks. And if it takes a little bit longer, you have North Carolina and Florida State who are both ranked up through January 6th. That's a lot of games that you can lose. <laughs> so so I think that it's obvious based on what we saw against Bryant that Dolajai is going to get the majority of the minutes in the five. Anselm and Edwards are just not ready. I don't, I don't know that Anselm saw any time in the second half. They put in Edwards for a second, but... It, it's going to be similar to last year where it's going to be a matter of can he stay in the game. But I do want to emphasize, and I, I, I tried to mention it last week, they had one practice. Beheim said they should have canceled the game. It was his mistake that they played the game. Bryant offered to postpone it or cancel it. They should not have played. They had practiced once in two weeks. They practiced on Thanksgiving the day before the game. That was the only time because the program was shut down after Beheim tested positive. So, there is a bit to take with a grain of salt. Watching that game, the whole team looked like they were moving in clay the whole time. They were slow. They weren't anticipating anything. The defense in the first half was god-awful. It was a little bit better in the second half, but we saw almost no substitutions in the second half because 
in the nail biter, Beheim just went with who, who he knows. Kadaria um, Richmond didn't even play in the second half, and he I was played very pretty well in the first that. half. Very yeah, surprised. very he surprised. Picked three quick, he, he picked up three quick fouls, so I think they, they sat him down. What upset me the most was Garrier on defense, actually. He was missing his rotations, and at one point, Beheim called him out, like, you just let that guy go right by you. And the other thing, it, it wasn't hustle, but I think there was about 12 seconds left in the game. And you had Gerard and Beheim at the top of the 2-3, like you always do. And the Bryant guard split him, just split him and penetrate. And the reason that drives me nuts is a good 2-3 zone is a matchup zone. So if someone has the ball at the very top to keep, there should be somebody on him. And there was nobody on him, and he went right in between them. Either Gerard or Beheim has to guard the ball. In any real basketball defense, you have to have somebody on the ball. And the guards up front just weren't playing it. Bryant was penetrating whenever they wanted against that zone. Part of the reason was the guards just were not covering it. And it's not because of any physical limitations like Colin spoke about last week. They just were not taking their assignments. And then Garrier was missing his assignments. And then you you obviously saw with uh, Richmond and Griffin, they're still getting the hang of things. But those were mental mistakes. And that was what I was hoping we were going to see leaps and bounds of improvements on. And I'm hoping that has to do with not having practice in so long. But that's what really worries me. The things that should be second nature coming into the season with the guys who should know the zone, it just wasn't happening. Yeah, I agree a thousand percent. To take kind of the opposite position to you, kind of switch from last week, um, I do think there was some good to take out of this, but this is very similar to what we talked about last week, right? Where I'm worried that these defensive problems that we saw have not changed over the summer. I'm hoping it's the one practice. Common sense tells me that, you know, the team that we saw seven days ago will be hopefully worse than the team we see on Thursday, but it's not going to be a night and day. The problems are still going to be there. They may be less in it, but they're still going to be there. And I think it just goes to just, for some reason, this just these mental lapses. These just, uh, for somebody like Buddy, who is essentially, I mean, you know, it's not as simple as this, but he's been in the system for his whole life, 20 years. He should know where the, you know, to stop the ball at the top of the zone and do things like that. Find uh, every a way. high school player, no matter who you are, should know that. It doesn't matter what sport you play. You always stop the ball. You can play hockey. You can play football. You, you stop the ball, carrier. But, um, well, on a fast break on on the power play, you don't you you take away the trailer. You don't take away the puck. Thanks, Brett. Okay, nah. so <laughs> to finish what I was saying, um, I think that the only good thing I take out of this is good teams find a way to win games when they're playing poorly, and we're clearly playing poorly. We're clearly playing against a pretty good team. Bryant, what there was it, fifteen games last year. They're hitting threes. They're not a bad team. They're going to win a lot of games this year, and I think we played a good opponent, and we found a way to win. It was ugly. They had two great shots to win it at the end of the game. I was surprised neither of them went in. But listen, a W is a W. We found a way to win the game, um, and that's what good teams do when they don't have their best. So that's what I'm, I'm clinging to for positives here. I just don't see the point of Bayheim going out there after the game and saying that, oh, we shouldn't have played the game. It's like, okay. He said it at halftime. So you've been, you've been or at halftime, or at any point, like, You've been doing this for 44, 45 years. I, I just don't understand what the point of that is. Like, why I think not, it was his attempt to take the blame off the players and put it on himself. It may not have landed that way, but I think that's what his intention was. 
It certainly peeved the uh, Bryant head coach. <laughs> I don't know why. Like he didn't. Beheim didn't throw Bryant under the bus or blame them for anything. He just said that he should have taken them up on the offer to postpone. I don't think the Bryant coach had the full context of the remarks when he responded to them because Beheim was very, very clear that he was not trying to say anything bad about Bryant. I think that the assumption was, oh, this isn't a very good basketball team. We can go out there on one day's practice and we can run them out of the gym. And there is enough parody in college basketball that you just can't do that. And I think just, I think Jim got a little cocky. Yeah, that kind of stri- I, I was wondering that myself is, is that really what it was? Is we just have the tap, we thought we had the talent that we would just take care it, of. It was, I, I think it was a mix of we think we have the talent and we desperately want to play basketball because with everything that happened with, coronavirus at the end of last season and going into this season, I think that there was such a desperation to get back out on the floor to get things back to at least sort of feeling normal-ish. And you have Bryant coming in. Oh, of course we can beat Bryant. I think it was a mix of those two things. The program really didn't want to postpone due to COVID even before the start of the season. Now, I know this is a call, not necessarily just Jim's call. It has to also do with uh, AD, but do you think that if a player tested positive, they would have canceled the game? Do you think that because it was Bayheim who tested positive, that he was so much like, no, we have to play this game because I don't want to have to cancel and then have everyone say on ESPN, you know, Bayheim was one who po- tested positive? A player did test positive. They yeah. Those two people, one. really. The game yeah, was yeah. far enough out where they could follow whatever protocols are in place and not directly impact the game. They followed the protocol and the game was scheduled and Bayheim could have like, I don't, I don't care, you know, who in the athletics department is in charge of making decisions like that. If Jim Bayheim says, I'm not coaching this game, it's not happening. So if he really wanted to cancel that game, he could have just said, Hey, look, you know, uh, I'm sure it was up to him. I'm, pr- I'm, I'm fairly yeah, confident. It's it's probably- yeah, like, yeah. I mean, whoever he needed to talk and he could have canceled it. No problem at all. But instead he played the game and then it didn't go well. And then, just seems like he's looking for a scapegoat, and he's like, oh, yeah, well, COVID-19 is the reason that we didn't do well today. Not anything to do with, hey, maybe Bryant's a better program than we thought, or our guys weren't ready, or, you know, Sadibe going out early was a huge bummer. Like, all those things also had an effect, but he decided to blame the pandemic. Well, because it's but the easier thing to blame. anything wrong with saying your team isn't ready because they didn't practice in two weeks. That was the way I took it. You know, like, oh, yeah, we didn't practice, so that's why. What worries me is that it's kind of like what Brett said. This is besides Dolajai and how key he is to our team. What stood out the most to me is how it's so easy for the other team's guards to penetrate. It takes no effort. No one's really getting in front of them. It seems like Gerard and Beheim kind of just olay out of the way and let these guards by. And what worries me about that is it's not just like, oh, well, they're rusty and they're slow and their conditioning's not up because – they missed practice, but these are the same exact things that caused our defense to be horrendous last year. And I just don't, based on this game and the extenuating circumstance, it's hard to tell whether it's just they're rusty, it's not going to be this bad, but it's worrisome because it's the same stuff that we couldn't get right all of last year. It's the same guys making the same errors. And like you said, Brett, it's not necessarily just their lack of athleticism. They could be in better position and they just aren't. Well, and so before you'll hear from us again, there's two more games at least uh, before we meet again here. Thursday against Niagara, 
That's going to be at 7 p.m. And if you've got Yes Network, uh, you can tune in. Uh, and then Saturday, they play Ryder at 6 p.m. That will be on the ACC Network. And we'll get into our, well, some thoughts perhaps about the ACC Network in a bit. And then we got the ACC Big Ten Challenge next Tuesday at Rutgers. That's going to be tough. That's going to be on ESPN2, 930 tip. Rutgers is ranked. That you know, that's going to be a tough. That's going to be a tough game. So you've got two hopefully wins here uh, to get you to three and zero. But then they're going to have to play much better against a, a very quality Big Ten opponent in less than a week here. We'll return to basketball uh, next time, but it is time to talk at least a little bit about the football team. Oh, so close, um, but close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Um, oh my lord! I, you know, there's this actually. I think feels a little worse than getting blown out uh, like we did the week before because Syracuse at it. They could have won this football game this past weekend against NC State, and obviously, you know, they were in the lead. Uh, they didn't give up the lead until the second half, and you just, you know, I hate to say it, but it just kind of felt like a killer. When when North Carolina State took the lead in the second half, even though it was a small lead, you just felt mm, that the offense is going to have trouble. And sure enough, they did until they moved the ball on the final drive. And then everybody knows what happened in the last two plays of the game. Culpepper runs around with the ball, what, 15 seconds? Gets sacked and then does the spike on fourth down. Syracuse loses 36-29. Before we jump into that um, and start going back and forth with with, with stuff, I just want to say for this coming game right against Notre Dame, Rex Culpepper's not even on the the depth chart. Oh. I just want to say that really sucks for that kid. For that to be his last play from scrimmage ever, that really just sucks and that pulls at my heartstrings. Um, And then I'll just throw it back to you. I mean, it pulls at one's heartstrings, but I mean, that was a really poor decision at the end there. And, yeah, seniors can't make that decision. I'm angrier less at the last play than at the second to last play. When you're on the seven-yard line, don't run around for 15 seconds when there's nothing there. Throw it away and live the play fourth down. Because at least fourth down from the seven-yard line, you got a chance. So so what's what's the two deep for this week? It's Morgan and, and Markovich. Oh, Oh, Morgan's back. So Dino's depth charts usually don't mean a whole lot, but the fact that he's not on it at all, not even as an or, I mean, that's, that's I, I pretty significant. Like a, like a see you later kind of thing, but it, it seems like it might be. So you guys were the recipients of my immediate reaction. Yeah, all caps. Or I should all say caps. The, the, the second immediate reaction. My dog was very frightened because I had watched the entire game without saying nary a word. And then the whole block heard my response to the end of the game. And my poor puppy jumped about eight feet in the air and he was really, really wondering what was going on. The second to last play was obviously a terrible football play. You get caught up in the moment. You try and make everything happen. It's a bad football play. A, a, a good quarterback does not make that play. It happens. I think that's forgivable. We've seen it happen in the pros. That's fine. If you spike the ball on fourth and goal to end the game, you should never play football again. Well, apparently now, Dino agrees. Now, I think Rex Culpepper is going to do great things with his life, whether it's 
in football or just whatever he chooses to do. He seems like a tremendous kid, and I wish him the best. And I'm honestly, I'm going to fondly remember him. I think he his commitment to the program has been noble, and I I really do appreciate everything he's done. But you can't if you're going to spike the ball on fourth and goal, you do not play football anymore. You just don't. That is that is unforgivable. That is the most embarrassing play in Syracuse football history. And I, I, I wanted to ask you guys, is there a play in sports if we were to ignore the stakes? Because obviously this game had zero stakes. Ignoring the stakes of the game, is there a more embarrassing play? The only thing I can think of is the Chris Weber timeout call. Not J.R. Smith. So I would point out, Ignoring this actually, the stakes, though. Ignoring the stakes. I know of at least one other situation where uh, a, a quarterback spiked on fourth down. I'm sure there are others, but I know Baylor did it in a bowl game against Penn State one time, and it was in the, it. It was essentially the very same situation that we're talking about. End of the game, Baylor had a chance to win. Spike on fourth down. One um, play stands out to me as uh, oh. Probably I, to me, I'd put it in the same boat, embarrassing wise, because it was so physically and athletically inept, and the goofiness factor was so high that it to me it trumps a mental error like that. Jose Canseco letting a ball bounce off his head for a home run. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah. That, 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 you might have me there. I don't know. I think the um, uh, uh, Mark Sanchez butt fumble was also pretty awful. It's pretty up there. Yeah, oh, can I can I put in the Tony Romo dropping the the snap? Oh, in the playoffs. But the thing with the snap and the butt fumble is those those were not mental. Like the mental error has to be a far vet. and the Jose Canseco one works just because like it's so goofy. Yeah, just You can't be that bad. Versus like Sanchez and Romo, like that's just un, an unfortunate physical error. I never expected Syracuse to win that game, no matter what the lead was. The whole time I'm watching it, they, they weren't playing well. The defense was playing okay, but like they've like it's been all year, the defense cannot get stops. They can get turnovers. So they, they live in by the by the turnover. They either get the ball or they give up the touchdown. The defense also doesn't get a break. And that is one of the biggest killers. Yeah. They're yeah. on the field too right. much. And, you know, I think they would get more stops if they had, I don't know, three minutes at least on the bench, because I feel like asking for five would be asking for a little too much. Uh, good defenses need time to sit on the bench. And the, our defense, I mean, I would love to see a breakdown of how long that defense has been on the field. Some of those guys could run an Ironman marathon at this point. The I play mean, numbers in the last game were unfathomable. I don't have them like next to me, but whatever the play numbers were for the last game was incredible. And I'm yeah. sure their first half numbers overall on the season probably look pretty good. Yeah. I think yeah, yeah, what struck me is is something, and it came from a, an ESPN analyst who doesn't usually say very good things about us. Something that he said is he said, if you look at Syracuse's defense, it's young, it's athletic, and it's talented. The defense actually isn't that bad. They were, you know, trying to learn a system and whatnot, but there is a lot of good athletic talent. And I think the thing that overall has been so frustrating with the football team this year is if you look at the whole time where we've been at Syracuse, this is probably, in terms of the athletes, 
the best athletes Syracuse has had in our time there. But we're not seeing the the results in the wins column. And that's really frustrating. It just, to me, comes down to, and we'll do, after the season ends, we'll do a full breakdown. Because... <laughs> slash counseling session. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, it really strikes me is if, if there are two things, three things that I want right now in the off season, we need to fix the offensive line because our, our players, those good athletes on the edges need time to work and our quarterbacks need time to work. That's one, two, we need a quarterback we need to use the transfer portal to get a quarterback with experience already who's got more than one year left. So you need somebody who's got two, three years but has experience. Remember we talked about that Mississippi State guy about a couple months ago. Somebody like that who can come in right away and maybe flip a switch. And we need – and just based on the injury issues, I would like to see an overhaul of the training staff because I'm sorry, these soft, these injuries that happened, this is two years in a row that this team has been decimated by injuries. It just has me question what kind of physical prep work they are not doing that is leading to those kinds of issues. I went to grad school with one of the athletic trainers for the football program and I took classes that were taught by other members of the athletic training staff. They're really, really good at, at their jobs. The stuff Matt is alluding to would more fall under the strength and conditioning side of it because that's more the preparation that you're talking about and the preventative stuff. And I don't know as much about what the strength and conditioning staff is like. So if you want to go and throw them under the bus, go right ahead. I wouldn't count. I wouldn't expect this to be an athletic training side of things. That's more because they're more medical personnel. But okay, there's that, something well, whoever is prepping I, I, preparation. I would, like to throw, I, I would like to throw the fourth string defensive back under the bus who injures your best player, who then opts out. And, and that's the other thing I think we we can't forget is this is a COVID year that probably hurt conditioning it definitely hurt the depth of the team we lost our two best defensive players we lost our two top running backs offensive line was patchwork from the beginning and i i've gone off about that before like if the offensive line is bad two years in a row that to me is a little bit of coaching or a lot of bit of recruiting so that worries me and but we've we've i'm I'm not going to relitigate that I think the talent is just there, but super young. And, you know, we have a lot of freshmen and redshirt freshmen who look like potential starters on the O-line coming up. But hopefully that comes to fruition. Next year will tell us a lot more than this year will. I And, and this year you kind of have to look at like individual performances and see, all right, who's looking like could be good and then you've got to say all right so then what does it all do when you have a full spring you have a full fall practice and that you can and there's some hopeful pieces there too like matt bergeron stepped up to the point where they swapped him from right tackle to left tackle bumping a multi-year starter out of the left tackle spot um chris blake just tweeted today it's oh it's my last week ineligible so (laughs) what 
we'll be seeing him next year. Well, the other thing I, I, I really want to see is I want to see Chris Elmore play a little QB next week. Um, Taj Harris was saying this week that if all the quarterbacks went out, Chris Elmore is QB. I mean, we, we have in baseball where some guys have, have, will have played all nine positions in a game or a season. I mean, screw it. Let's have Chris Elmore play every single position on offense. He can. We know he can. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Why not? What because, do we have you to know, lose? Because you know what really struck me is that program. Dino mentioned yeah. that we were like one player away from having to do no contests all season because we didn't have enough offensive linemen, which really says Chris Elmore saved the season a lot. Yeah. Yeah, we literally would have not played a game if it wasn't for Chris Elmore. Chris Elmore is criminally underappreciated. Yeah, that I'll agree with. You know what? Hang the jersey in the dome now. And yeah, being, a short, being a short yardage back and blocking fullback might be the thing he was least good at when he was here. Because he never really lit it up playing in those packages, but... He was a very effective defensive lineman. He was a serviceable offensive lineman. I mean, he did a little bit of everything. Yeah. He's the type of athlete I really feel for because if he were to have been able to commit to a single position, who knows? Maybe he plays Sundays. Maybe he just ends up on a practice squad somewhere. But I feel like because he was so team first that he did whatever the coaches asked him to do, he appeared to me to be a, a jack of all trades, master of none. That could be saving grace, though, actually, because that actually might get him an invite to a camp. Like, he's not going to get drafted, but he could certainly get invited to a camp as and and maybe end up, like you said, on a practice squad or end up kind of somewhere as a some NFL teams. You do need kind of that jack of all trades guy, as the Denver Broncos showed us this past week. Um, I was just going to mention before we get to Notre Dame, we have a potential exciting recruit coming in for 2022. This guy, Nair Graham, he's from New Jersey and he went to the same high school as Deuce Chestnut. He's coming in at corner next year. Um, and earlier today, I think Deuce Chestnut uh, tweeted, I've got an orangey feeling about this one in relation to Nair Graham coming to Syracuse. His other prospects are Nebraska, Miami, Penn State, and Maryland. So some places that linebackers are kind of well-renowned. So well, one Syracuse, of these things is not like the other. Well, yeah, I mean. And it's Maryland. I was mainly talking about <laughs> Um, we can't really we we can't talk smack about Maryland though, not right uh, now. No, we we nope. we have a lid on that one forever because that was the most embarrassing loss. I think that might have been the most embarrassing loss from start to finish that I've been in the stadium for. Oh, I would I like to bring the 2013. It was it was so hard to watch. I I tried. I wasn't in the stadium for that one. Thank God. I, I tried to look away as much as I could, but um, the, the crowd noise just sort of told you all you needed to know about that one. But this guy, you know, potentially a, a big get uh, in addition to, to guys like Deuce Chestnut coming in next year. The recruiting, I hope, just keeps going this direction. We get guys like this, you know, these, these uh, highly recruited guys. Uh, Dino keeps that train moving even if somehow – He's got a losing argument right now because who wants to come to a to a program where where the quarterback spikes it on fourth down uh, when the game is on the line? Not a great recruit, recruiting tool there, but but just looking forward, you'll play. I, you but know, Joe that Biden is a recruiting tool. 
Yeah, yeah. Biden. Joe Biden aside, I, I really want to find our Dino. I'd be trying to get a cabinet position right now. Uh, hey, I want <laughs> Joe Biden's also on the IR right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, we can't even start God. Joe. So, yeah, speaking- defensive back took him out too. He's going to be limping into his uh, into his inauguration. Uh, day. He's literally in a walking boot right now, and yeah. pictures of Dino next to him. It's like this guy really tore it up on the field. Come on out, guys! He was playing with his dog. All right, he was. Yeah, the dog heard dog. that the, the Bidens were going to get a cat, and this is his way of getting retribution. So. We do have to mention Syracuse football plays on national TV Saturday uh, on NBC Why? Why do we? against second-ranked Notre Dame because, of course, in our worst season in 15 years, naturally we finish by playing the second-ranked team in the country. We can make up for a lot. If we somehow pulled this one off, I would be ecstatic. Oh, we're going to play well. Um, Absolutely. Uh, we won't, but it would be a lot of fun if we did, because it would make up for a lot of pain. If we and, win, we get to go to Liberty's bowl game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and we get to screw up. Uh, look, I will take any opportunity to watch Syracuse to to screw up. Want one. Except they're canceling all of them. There's only like 30 left. Notre Dame's chances for a national title. Like that would just be amazing and awesome so, because they would never forgive us for it. The best thing we have going for us is that this is the type of game that Notre Dame would lose. has nothing to do with our program. They oh, could I be playing anybody. This is the type of game that Notre Dame would lose. No, I don't if care about Notre Dame. Game, I vow to run to wherever. I guess we're are we playing in South Bend. I'm going to run to South Bend, Indiana, and uh, and, and I'm going to storm the field. You know, I'll, I'll be there. I don't understand why you guys think that we're going to lose this game. Yeah. Like, they're, like, guys, like, I – Listen, Syracuse sports are many things. The thing that they're above all else is they play up and down to their opponents, without a doubt. And we are going to win this game. I am 100% guaranteed. 100% guaranteed. Oh, boy. No, we will. We will. Absolutely. Or we'll at least make a competitive. This is a respectable podcast, Colin. Matt, you were talking about about, uh, Notre Dame potentially going to win a national title. I'm not as confident as Colin that we're going to win this game, but I am very confident that Notre Dame is not going to win the national championship. Oh, oh, I don't think they're going to win the national title, but they're going to. We can take them out of the playoff. We could because even though they're going to play in the ACC title game, which is guaranteed, if they have a loss to a a previously one-win team on their schedule, there's no way they get into the final four. Hypothetically, they put like a like a one-loss Ohio State in over them. Even if they've won the ACC championship, I feel like our game is almost irrelevant at that point. If they win the ACC championship, they, they're probably in. The Notre Dame team that I know will win this game handily but boringly and then get obliterated in their first playoff game or in the conference championship game. Whenever they play a real team next, well, yeah. they'll just get I wanna, smashed. I I want to see them play Trevor Lawrence because they almost lost when Clemson didn't have Trevor Lawrence. So what leads you to believe that? I mean, Notre Dame is probably better known than any other program in the history of the world at at setting expectations high, getting all this publicity, and then just flopping whenever they get to a real challenge. Um, and that's that's all I'd say about that. This is music to my ears. I love trashing Notre <laughs> Dame. Colin is right that we play up another opponent, so like – we're going to lose, 
I don't think we're going to get Georgia Tech or Maryland curb stomped, but I think that we'll lose. We might not lose as terribly as we could, but I don't think it's going to be competitive. Dino's going to be in the locker room pregame just chanting, cover the spread, cover the spread. To me, the best best case scenario is the Syracuse Notre Dame game ending up as a Scott Van Pelt bad D. I mean, whoa. I don't know. Red is only 34. That's surprising. So the the last thought I have is that if we only see Jacoby and Morgan in this game, I'll be somewhat surprised. I'm surprised to hear that the initial depth chart doesn't have Rex Culpepper's name on it anywhere. It's just not the way Dino normally does it. It's very un-Dino-like. I think we're going to um, hear that. Normally, you know, you would tack Rex's name somewhere with an or next to it, and he would either be listed second string with an or and then start, or be listed as the starter and hardly play. But if you look at the way Dino normally operates with this, he's going to do what he believes puts – his players in the best position they can to do well, despite whatever extenuating circumstances there are. Jacoby and Morgan against a much lesser opponent got obliterated because his offensive line couldn't protect him. And I believe had a concussion. So you're going to send him out there against what might be the best opponent you play all year. And if not clearly the second best opponent you play all year against a very good defense that is going to hit him and hit him a bunch of times. Or you're going to put out a, a different true freshman who Dino has proven all year long that he doesn't believe is ready. And you have to remember, Dylan wasn't an early arrival. He showed up in like August and they weren't even really practicing and then game started. So he's only been getting real reps in practice as a college athlete for a few weeks. So you're telling me you're going to put out there the kid who already had a head injury getting smashed two weeks ago or the kid who clearly hasn't been deemed ready by the coaching staff, or you're going to let Rex Culpepper bite one more bullet despite the egregious mistake that he made in the last game. It just doesn't make sense to me knowing how Dino works. No, I don't think there is any way that Culpepper is benched if he's healthy. I think we're going to hear that he's hurt if what you're saying about the death threat is true. I, I just, it's just, it is like you're saying, it's unbelievably not Dino style to sit a kid down, especially in the last game of the season and playing all year. No, there's no way. Either he's hurt and that's why he's on the death chart or he's going to start and get the majority of the reps. I agree completely. There's no way that Dino's going to shut him down because he had a bad play. Especially considering what's behind be- him, like the position yeah, he's going to put no. these other kids in. It just doesn't, doesn't add up. No, I Chris agree. Elmore is going to be the quarterback because every time Notre Dame hits him, he won't fall down. I'd watch it. I'd watch it. I would, it. I would, watch I, it I would be more apt to watch it than I would now. Yeah. When we beat Notre Dame with Chris Elmore's QB, I think we should start a website and call it Chris Elmore is an Absolute Magician. We run the Wildcat with Chris Elmore, but we call it the Fat Cat. <laughs> <laughs> that is... This has to happen now. This has to happen. And not that he's fat. He's a big, he's a big, strong dude. It's just a good, catchy name. You know what? It would be the slowest wildcat in history because he'd just be like rumbling down the sidelines, but people would just be bouncing off of him because he's just so big. It'd be like playing a game of Donkey Kong. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That that would make Scott Van Pelt. Well, 
we have one more thing we need to do, and that is Brett needs to get something off his chest. It's time to know what made Brett mad this week. All right, Brett, what was it this week? So I've been consuming a lot of Syracuse sports lately, so I have all sorts of reasons to be upset and angry, but actually it's not Syracuse that did it. It is the ACC Network. I've been watching the ACC Network for quite some time now. And normally I just find it to be an inconvenience. It's a pain to find. The broadcasters are not that good. But this week I just, I, I, I got completely fed up. Watching the basketball game, they just didn't know what was going on. I had to look to Twitter to figure out what was going on with the journalists who were telling me what Beheim said at halftime. That's how I figured out the Barama Sidibe was hurt. The, the broadcast did not mention that Sidibe got hurt. He left at the 16-minute timeout in the first half. And when Alan Griffin started the second half, they were like, oh, yeah, it's because you're playing so well. No, Syracuse's big man got hurt. And watching the, the, the football game, they just they give you no background on the team. None. They don't tell you that Syracuse is going through all of these different opt-outs due to COVID. I don't think they mentioned Tommy DeVito once. I think they showed him. They just – they. If you are not a Syracuse fan who is closely following what's going on, you have no idea what's going on. You should learn something about the teams that you're watching. And these broadcasters stink. They're just bad. They don't inform you about context. And then I hear that some of my good buddies here on this podcast can't even get ACC Network because they're in a contract dispute with the cable companies, which generally means they want to charge more money? Why? Why do you want to charge more money? You're such a lousy product, and you want to make people pay more money for you? No, it's terrible. Make it stop. I want to go back to searching for ESPN The Ocho to find the Syracuse Bryant game. I want the ACC Network to stop. I know it's a money thing, but dear God, at least get better. It's like we're the ugly stepchild of the ACC, which of course we are, but like, still, just be good at your job. That's all I want is for these guys to be good at their job and to tell me what's going on on the game. I mean, I don't, I don't need to be told what's going on. Uh, I, I'd watch it on mute. I, I'd watch it anywhere. But I do watch if they got rid of the ACC network, then we would just not have any options and not be able to watch it literally anywhere. Like I have to like dart in and out of sports bars to see who's got the freaking ACC network. No one's got it. It's not on, it's not on my ESPN account. It's not on, it's blacked out on the ESPN plus. It's just, it's just mind blowing trying to watch all this stuff that should be easy to access, but it just isn't. Like I don't understand. Cause like Washington DC where most of us are is ACC country. The University of Virginia isn't that far away. There's a lot of Virginia Tech fans. You're not that far from the triangle, right, where you've got North Carolina and North Carolina State and Wake and all this. And you've got... NC State's not, not part of the research triangle. 
Uh, whichever one, whatever the heck. They, they shouldn't have as many schools in one place if they don't want to get people confused. Or just call it a square and be done with it. Um, <laughs> but, but, but to, you know, Pitt isn't that far away. Why isn't these places in, like D.C., the ACC network needs to be available in Washington, D.C.? That's ridiculous. Like, just, just. Come on, RCN. If you guys, if you guys want my specific provider, if you guys want an uplifting uh, note to end on, speaking of Washington D.C., Georgetown basketball lost to Navy at home today. Yo, All right, Patriot League victory. Anchors away, baby. <laughs> that's great. Well, that's a good thing to end on. So we're gonna just stop right there. So hey, Syracuse basketball is one and zero, and Georgetown has lost. Is that was that their only game so far? Are they zero and one. No, they're they're one and one. Oh, uh, well, they still that well they're still worse than us. So, what uh, elementary school did they play to get their win? I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I only pay well, attention when they lose. Thank you for listening to episode thirty of Three Idiots and a Lawyer. Uh, if you have the nineteen ninety NCAA Lacrosse Trophy, let us know that you have it. Just uh, let us know it's safe. You can follow us on Twitter at Three IL Pod. Like us on Facebook. Give us those stars on whatever platform you're watching us on. For Kevin O'Keefe, Brett Fortnum, Joe Shell, Colin Lerner, I am Matt Pfeiffer. We will see you next week. Thank you.